Shikara Basokoro Um, the man of God that was bringing the word on Thursday and Friday reminded me of something that we've also used to been doing in Africa and that when the reading of the word took place people would stand and there would be a reverence and an honor for it so I'm going to read the first scripture and we're going to stand for that and hear it because that will probably be the foundation of what I'm going to speak on today so before I read, I just want to pray. So Father God, I just thank you, Lord Jesus, for your anointing that breaks every yoke. That as the reading of your word, your powerful word takes place, Father God, people's lives begin to be changed, Father God. We thank you, Lord, for what you've done in our lives. We thank you for what you've already begun in our lives this week on Thursday and Friday night, Lord Jesus. That some of us are already experiencing personal revival, and this is the beginning of revival in the United States of America, Father God. We thank you that this church is going to be one of the forerunners for what you're about to do in this nation, Father God. Not just this county, not just this state, Lord, but in this nation, Father God. So I thank you, Lord, for your power, which is a power that cannot be insulted, a power that is above every other power. And we thank you, Lord, that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And we thank you that your truth is ever the truth and it never changes. But today, Father God, I thank you that you are the unchangeable changer. So may your word change us and con confirm us into your word, Lord, that we'll be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And I thank you that this will touch our hearts, move us and inspire us to be victorious, to be those that are renowned and great in days to come and generations to come, that people will continue to speak of your name because of the sacrifices that we've made in our lives and because we chose to love first and not last. Thank you, Lord. Matthew 6, verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust have corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore the eye be single, Thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. Verse 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Yet cannot serve God and mammon. Amen. You may take a seat. Thank you, Lord. And I just want to take this moment to honor the man of God of the house, the woman of the house. Thank you, Pastor David and Shirley. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And um, I just want to thank everybody here, my family members, you all my family, those of you that have been here throughout the years, seen me grow. Um, what happened today wouldn't have taken place if I didn't have people like you in my lives, didn't have people to uplift me and support me. Um, through good and bad times, 
trials and tribulations and um, we've seen lives change my life has changed and I honor you all for that and I I thank you for sitting here and listening to me because Lester Samuel said once when he was a young preacher he thought he knew it all but he said actually I should have paid everybody that listened to me because back in those days I knew nothing <laughs> and I wouldn't have become what I am today if those people didn't sit down and listen to me so I thought about that and I thought you know if it wasn't for this church and this body I would never be the voice that God's called me to be so thank you for your obedience amen um, the reason why God started to put this message on my heart is because what I believe was taking place on Thursday and Friday. Um, for me, I always saw baptism as a rededication, a consecration to the Lord. For me, it wasn't always just a, bapt a baptism of repentance, but it was leaving an old man behind, the old desires. The things that I used to treasure, no longer do I treasure them anymore. And... Um, Whatever we treasure, there our heart will be. And um, we're living in a day and age where gold is our treasure, our cars are our treasure, our success and what we can do by our own power is the things we worship and we serve. Um, we live in a day and age where people believe that they serve God, but every time something goes on or something goes against their will or their desire, all of a sudden God isn't the sugar daddy that they wanted him to be and um, they feel like God is against them but God doesn't want to share you with him and I want to tell you right now with this message God can invest in you better than your bank manager can Amen. you know so I'm gonna also just read some scriptures and then I want to tell some some um, historical stories about um, three characters that um, some of us may have heard of, some of us may not, but they inspire in different ways. One of them will be somebody that um, gave up everything and went onto the streets for the gospel because in his time the church was the place where you got to receive the gospel and there weren't really an evangelical mindset. And um, his ministry was basically based off Matthew 10 verse 9, take no purse with you. And um, then I want to tell a story about a martyr who brought deliverance to a nation in a time of war and bloodshed. And um, not only was she canonized years after her um, burning at the stake, but she was a political figure and a martyr and somebody that heard from the voice of God. Um, and also just remember as I tell these stories, I'm a product of my culture just as much as you are. So. Um, I can only tell it the way it was and the way the historians wrote it down. Some of the stuff I don't understand myself, but history doesn't lie when it comes to seeing the fruit of what these people did. So I chose these characters for a certain reason, because also there's some mystery behind their names. But their names live on hundreds of years after their time. And uh, the next figure I would want to choose would be a political figure that changed their nation didn't end up a martyr, but also saw lots of defeat and lots of loss in his life. But he ended up being remembered as one of the greatest kings in his nation. And, um, you know, a lot of the common law that he brought about after his victories um, today is still studied in American law. So America had even adopted some of what this guy's studies brought about through the Bible in the Old Testament. Amen. 
And why I chose these people is because these people chose to treasure something that's not of this world. They understood that they were in this world, but they didn't belong to it. They understood that you can work and work and you can succeed in many things, but if you're not investing in the things of the kingdom, it's all nothing. And that's really what was really getting to me this week. And then when the baptism, baptismals were taking place, I saw a lot of surrender. It was almost like we had a revival, amen? That's what it felt like. We were here until midnight. Amen, brother. Yes, it was awesome. And that's what I, I was used to in the one church I went to. We had stuff like that happen often. And, and um, they didn't ask me what I was. I was one of the people. They didn't ask me why I was getting baptized. So I thought, oh, well, then, you know. But one of the things was that, God, I want to see you move the way I saw you move in the early days that I consecrated my life to you, the miracles, the signs, and the wonders when I was still in Africa. I want to see you do it in this nation. I want you to remember the sacrifices that the people of the United States of America have made over a couple of hundred years to bring the gospel to the nations, to be a breadbasket to a lot of countries in Africa. And I want you, Father God, to be righteous and just, just to these people. And even if you can just... Use me, Lord, in that way. And um, I also wanted to tell the Lord, I wanted to ask God personally to forgive me for being bitter about things not going my way. And that was one of the reasons why I got baptized. Because um, life is hard. And um, we've always got to focus on the things of God. And we've got to focus on what He wants and what His will is. And when we forget to eat that meat every day, we get hungry, we get lost, and we get weak. Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of the Father, my bread. So when we're in His will, there's an energy that can come that the world can't give. Um, when we seek after the things of the world, our hunger is never satisfied, and our eyes are never pleased. What is it worth if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Alexander the Great never lost anything in our eyes of the world. At the height of his power, he died in a shrunken stupor in Babylon. The only reason why they turned away from India was because his soldiers began to miss their families and their children. It was never because anybody, anybody defeated them. But he died at the height of his power. And uh, his kingdom was carved up and none of his children inherited anything. And um, think about that. I wonder where he is today, even though he conquered the whole known world at that time. Amen? So, lay not up for yourself treasures upon earth. Think about what you're investing in. What are you sowing in? When you're sowing into the kingdom, when you sow into this church, are you doing it so God can bless you with a new car? Or are you doing it that the hungry can be fed? Amen? Are you doing it that God's kingdom can expand in your time? That the coasts can be enlarged of the church and the body of Christ in this nation. Or you're doing it so that, that the Lord can be your sugar daddy. And um, verse 20, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust have corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. Um, I want to quickly actually read something because I'm going to talk about somebody in the Old Testament and this applies to his... Um, let's go to Luke 12 verse 13 because we just read about how 
We can lay up something and we can work so hard for something, but nothing is ever guaranteed in this lifetime. Nothing materialistic can you ever guarantee that nobody can ever take this from me. No matter how powerful you are, no matter how great you are, or how great your empire is, or how great your name is amongst your people. Not by might, amen, nor by power, nor by strength, but by his spirit, amen. God's chosen the foolish things of this world. And I just, I really feel this is such a powerful message because the people we always remember and talk about, we forget to talk about the sacrifices they made and the things they gave up. There's a movie that I'm going to be playing for the youth on Wednesday. It's called Mali. It's about a, um, one of the richest guys in Kenya. Um, my mother and father-in-law, Mama Shri and Papa Don, introduced it to me, and I was watching it, and I didn't really know what I was watching. Um, I wept the whole way through the movie because this man was so rich. When he, when he gave... Up, he gave up everything, but not only did he give up everything, he just started feeding the poor. He didn't, he had the business mind of a genius. So you'd think, well, he would just take the money and the empire he has and build all the orphanages. No, he didn't. He stopped everything immediately and started to go collect children from the street. Immediately. You think that's foolishness. Why don't you use the money you've made? But God wanted to show him by my might. And his family resented him for many years after that until some certain things took place and the youth will be watching that movie. And that movie really made me think about how God wants us to rely on his strength. Not by our empire or what we build. Amen? So Luke 12, is that what I said? Um, okay, I hope I'm in the right place. But let's read it, it's still the Bible and it's good. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth, and he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where, I, where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my uh, barns, I will build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. Being rich towards God. Let's go to Daniel 5. Thank you, Lord Jesus. This is going to be powerful. Thank you, Lord. I don't know. I think we're going down a good road. Isn't it nice? This is biblical, isn't it? Yeah. Amen. Just checking if you agree. Um, I'm going to skip a lot of parts because this is a long chapter and we need to get to the meat of it. But we'll start in verse 1. 
Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and the silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes, his wives and the concubines drank in them, and drank wine and praised the gods of gold, of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone, all the material things that they were worshipping. In the same hour came four fingers of a man's hand, and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that, so that the joints of his loins were loosed. And his knees smote one against another. The king cried aloud to bring the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, all the witches and crystal ball readers and all the liars that were around, you know. The people that we like to go see sometimes at certain festivals and stuff instead of coming to church. Um, let me see which verse I'm going to read in. Okay. Let's go straight to where Daniel comes and interprets the dream in verse 25. And this is the writing that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Ufarsin. This is the interpretation of the thing. Mene, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balance and art found wanting. Peres, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then commanded Belshazzar, and, like, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Uh, the reason why that he was made third is because actually Belshazzar was um, a regent king because his dad Nebuchadnezzar was on some sort of a moon quest to find the moon god in some mountain. So that's why he could only give him third place. Um, in the night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. And Darius, the, um, let me go back. Then commanded Belshazzar the clove that Daniel was scarlet and put the chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. In that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. And Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about three score and two years old. Now, have you never thought about it? Well, how could he have been partying? And having a good time when there's an evading party outside your gates. Well, what we don't know about Babylon, it was an impenetrable fortress at the time. Everybody in the known world and in the ancient times knew nobody could take Babylon. But the Tigris and the Euphrates flowed through it and the walls had kind of a moat. And what we don't know about Cyrus is he was not just a military genius, but he was quite a good engineer. And uh, what he did historically... It's known. Herodotus wrote about it. So we wonder, well, how did they just get in and why was he doing that? Because he thought nobody's going to come in. Now we can just party. They can siege out there. We can withstand a siege for years and years and continue eating and drinking. Eventually they're going to have to lift the siege and go home. But what he did was he diverted the waters of the river. And in the middle of the night, while Daniel was giving the prophecy, his soldiers walked in uncontested and slaughtered everybody. And killed him that night. 
historical fact. So if you were ever wondering how that happened, there was some king who thought that nobody could take his empire. He was sitting in his protection. He was sitting with all his vessels of gold, his concubines, his wives, his princes. He was an untouchable man. But according to the word of the Lord and the word of Isaiah the prophet, about a hundred years before, Cyrus came in uncontested, didn't have to use a ladder, didn't have to build any siege works, diverted the river and walked under in the middle of the night, walked right into his palace and said, surprise. Sometimes we'll be surprised when we worship the wrong things. And um, not a lot of people can really understand because he basically gave him a currency. Um, and if you want to see how Daniel translated it, it's basically like saying um, dollar, dollar, quarter, nickel. So it was the currency of the Babylonians at the time. So inspired by the Holy Spirit, he looked at it and he basically said in English, this is the best way to tell you what he said, you think your kingdom is worth a lot of dollars, but you're going to be drawn and quartered, and I wouldn't give a nickel for what this place will be worth by tomorrow morning. That's basically the translation of what he told him. And an unjust scale is an abomination to the Lord. And the Bible said he was found wanting. And that's why I'm bringing this message, because... I want us and I want the body of Christ to get to that place where we don't rely on our own empire. We always remember that what we have was given by God. And without Him, we won't be successful. Maybe in the eyes of the world you can be successful. But know at any time that can come crumbling down. Um, there was a, a certain group of people in Zambia and they didn't believe in the banks and what have you. Very rich people, it's a certain race group, and they're very good at making money. And um, at the time, there came a president that wanted to change the currency in one day. And if you didn't have any of your money invested in the bank, you're in trouble. Everything you had hidden under your bed meant nothing. Everything. And these people didn't ever save in the bank, but they were prospering. And um, the suicide rate went off the wall the next day because so many people lost everything they'd worked for because the president made a decree that the currency would change and they'd turn around the way the money was working. Think about that. You can store it up, you can hide it, but anything can happen at any time. You can work so hard and create an empire, but a Hitler might raise it, be raised up. That's why we've got to thank God for the leader we have in this nation right now. You know? He's the one who raises them up. He's the one who brings them down. Amen. And we're always at the mercy of the Lord. Because in the days of Jehoiachin, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah, um, Josiah had a revival. He restored Israel, brought the Passover back. But because of the sins of Manasseh, God still was going to bring a judgment. And Jeremiah warned them and warned them. He said, yeah, will come the judgment of God. And God used a wicked king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar to come down into the land and to subdue his people and take them into captivity. He raises them up. And um, when there's sin in the house of God, you'll always see that a force will come up against us and we lose the protection because we, we forget about what he has in, instilled in our lives. Amen? This is powerful. So I like to um, use historical facts and the Bible just to prove to some arrogant people that this is not just biblical, it's historical, and God does it over and over again. Um, you find a lot of times in the history of mankind when the church started to deplete 
and people started to get into deities and, and started to be arrogant and started to bring sin into the house of God, came judgment in some sort of a way through maybe foreign peoples and people were subjugated and poured into slavery. Amen. So um, I want to just tell some stories now quickly because I've got only about 25 minutes. I'm going to start with St. Francis of Assisi, and have you heard of, um, have you ever heard of Elizabeth of Hungary? Anybody heard of Elizabeth of Hungary? Okay, that's good, that's why I'm telling the story. Anybody heard of St. Francis of Assisi? Yes, he's one of my favorites, and I was listening to a Presbyterian historian tell the story, and I was just lying down on my couch, and I think Haley was there with me, and um, when I heard this story, because it was really, this woman, her father was the king of Hungary. His name was Andrew of Hungary II. And he was a contemporary or a student of St. Francis of Assisi's ministry. The, Saint Fran uh, the Franciscan monks. Um, so he, 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 he raised Elizabeth of Hungary under these teachings of giving up everything and feeding the poor. And um, lay not up for yourself riches um, that moth and rust can give. You know, those type of messages, messages of serious sacrifice, messages of, of, um, of serious poverty. And now, uh, don't think that uh, St. Francis of Assisi always wanted to bring that upon everybody. He knew that this was a certain calling, that certain people were anointed for this, to do this at a, at a very powerful way, and he had the grace for it. And St. Francis of Assisi was known as um, somebody who um, was capable of doing extraordinary things. Um, it, it's, um, it's well known by a lot of um, witnesses, more than just one or two, that wherever he goes, the birds would follow him, and they would sing. And uh, this is not pigeons. He didn't have bread in his pocket. This is all forms of bird life and animal life, and sometimes he would call the animals together, and I don't understand it. Don't have to. But he would preach to them. And tell them, usually his message would be based on this, thank God for saving you in the flood and giving you trees to nest in. Simple stuff like that. You'd think the guy's a nut job. But he touched so many people and by the height of his ministry had 5,000 people, four to 5,000 people in his um, ministry. And um, he was also well known for going to um, Egypt in the time of the Sixth Crusade. Now, he walked through many battle zones where Christians were murdering and killing Muslims. And Muslims were murdering and killing um, Christians. So this is not exactly a time to go and start a, like an evangelistic crusade type of thing and go preach the gospel. I think the, the, the sheikh or um, what do you call them, the sultan was Ilmar. And he went to preach to the sultan. This sultan was so convicted, there's no historical fact that he gave his life to the Lord Jesus, but he was so convicted and so touched by St. Francis's ministry. Um, I hope you just realize that what I'm telling you is supernatural, to go into a war zone, into an Islamic nation, and to preach to the king in his courts about the gospel of Jesus Christ, takes some serious guts. And um, he was so touched by his ministry that he gave him free reign and he said, my kingdom will even support what you're doing here in this place and support any of your monks and you have my protection. That was one of the things that he did. He struggled in his life when he first started to get touched by the Lord. Um, 
he started to have compassion for the poor. He grew up in a home where his father was a cloth merchant. Um, Assisi is a town in Italy. Um, I always used to think he was French because the reason why he had Francis was because his father loved France. He probably made a lot of money out of France. So he thought, I'll call my son Francis. <laughs> um, he struggled seriously with the poor, like he really had a compassion for it. He went on a little um, battle, you know, some of the, um, the factions would fight with each other. And his father bought him all the paraphernalia, all the knight's armor, not that he was much of a knight, and sent him to battle. He was cap captured and he spent about nine months, almost a year in prison. And, he, and it's said that in that time, he started to understand really what the poor went through because he understood cold, he understood hunger. By the time they traded for him back and got him back for some negotiation, he was very sick and ill. He... Um, was very um, supernaturally changed at that time. Something happened to him. People said he was never the same again. St. Francis was a very popular boy in his town. People loved him. They liked to go party with him and chill with him. But even at a young age, he started to have compassion for the poor. So I also just want to say that you need to have compassion for souls, and you have to have a burden for souls. If you want God to use you and you don't have that, I think you should get before the Lord and start to seek that thing very deeply. Because that's one of the things that St. Francis had even before he became the man of God that we remember today. And he said um, that he struggled very much with the poor. And one day what he did was he, um, he saw a beggar on the street. And you know, he was quite a, a wealthy guy for the time. And uh, he didn't have money to give him. So he said, I'll exchange my garments. Because he wanted to know what it was like to wear sackcloth and a poor man's clothes. And he obviously went home stinking and smelling and his dad didn't like that very much. Um, there's a movie, actually, a very old movie, and it touched my life. It might be a little bit corny, but if, if you're led by the Holy Spirit, go watch it because I cried through the whole movie. It's called Brother, Son, Sister, Moon. Who's ever watched that? Very good movie. Yes, and they picked a lot of truth in that movie, so you should go watch that. Um, one day... He struggled. He was, he was so appalled by um, leprosy. There was a leprosy colony near where he stayed. And um, he couldn't really, he, did, he couldn't stand leprosy. He thought it was disgusting. But he knew that this was a problem in his heart. So one day he overcame his fear and he ran up to a leper and he grabbed him and hugged him and kissed him on the lips. And from that day onward, that's why we know St. Francis of Assisi is well known for somebody who went down to the leper colonies and would wash them and clean them and heal the sick. And that was the beginning of it. He overcame a fear. And um, I think that's a very powerful testimony. Now, I really want to talk about Elizabeth of Hungary because her father was touched by this man's ministry and he was a king. So Elizabeth was a princess. And she was married off at the age of 14 to a king, a landgrave, in a, a, a faction by the name of Thuringia, which was a part of the Holy Roman Empire which um, you remember was kind of started by uh, Henry the Fowler. And um, so she was now married off at the age of 14. It's probably a little bit of a young age. Amen. I'll just have you know that St. Francis of Assisi died at the age of 46 because they say that he worked so hard and he gave himself so wholly to the poor that he never had time for himself. Um, Elizabeth of Hungary died at around about the age of 24. But let me tell you a story. Once she got married off, because of how she was raised and because of the message of the gospel and the way she understood it, 
she really wanted to be like these Book of Acts type of people and give it up. So her um, husband would go off on, you know, diplomatic meetings and she would start to feed the poor outside of Wartburg Castle, which we also know historically as the place where, um, what's his name, Martin Luther went and started to write and we hid for a while. And we, um, that famous scene where he threw the ink at the wall because the devil started to tempt him. That was the castle that Elizabeth of Hungary was in and she used to feed the poor out of that place. And um, there was even one incident where a famine hit the nation. And um, she started to open up the grain houses, the store started to sell royal stuff, and the bureaucrats obviously got um, pretty epileptic about it. And um, they were upset. And as soon as um, King um, Ludwig, or Louis in English, came back, um, they started to complain about his wife. And it's very well known that Ludwig loved Elizabeth very much. And I find that very interesting, and I'll tell you two stories of, he didn't, because the first time I heard, I was like, this king must have been very righteous to just allow his wife to do this. So when this happened, I heard that he rebuked these people, he rebuked these people, he said, she's been a good Christian as you ought to be, so let her do what she needs to do and feed the people, and he supported her very much. But there was a time where she would sneak bread and take things from the castle to the poor, and um, his brother tried to stop her, and he said, show me what's under your garments. And when she opened it up, a whole lot of flowers came out. It was like a miraculous thing, and that was one of the signs that God had anointed her to do something, and that they were, they were not meant to stop her. Another time, she brought a leper into the castle, and she put him on um, her husband's bed, and started to look after him and wash him. And um, he came in and he was very upset about it and then they removed him and while they were removing the clothes, suddenly he went into a vision and he saw Christ crucified on the cross laying down on his bed. And that was why he always supported her ministry. Now the interesting part is one day when he was on his way to the crusades, he died of a fever on the way to the sixth crusade. And um, his brother took the throne, Henry, Heinrich was his name in German. And he's the bad guy. He um, didn't give her any of her inheritance, didn't honor anything, thrust her out of her two children. She was pregnant, right out into the cold in the middle of winter. And the very people that she used to feed and looked after in the famine the year before wouldn't open their doors to her because of fear of what the king might do. Don't think that when you give everything to the Lord and you go to the people he sent you to that you'll get justice from them. God will vindicate the righteous. Don't think that the people that you love on are going to give you back what God can give you. They're not. God sent you to do that to be the first love, to love first. So she eventually found her way to a Franciscan monastery, and um, she started to beg and live in poverty. And even in her poverty, she would still take 10% of what she begged for and give it to the poor. Never stopped. She eventually got a, um, a sewing job where she would make a lot of uh, um, um, clothing and she would give it to the poor. And um, about nine months before all of this started in her life and what have you, about nine months of her being on the streets and living in that monastery and praying and spending her time giving, giving her life. And even think about it, these are royal children too. You know, these, 
And what King Heinrich didn't know is that these people are heir to the throne. So by the time one of these sons come of age, you're in trouble. <laughs> so um, the knights came in and they were, they, were, um, they were wroth. They couldn't believe that this man had done this to Elizabeth of Hungary. She was very popular. She was probably famous at the time in a lot of the kingdoms in the nearby region. And um, they forced him at sword, well, it almost said gunpoint, at sword point. You give her, you give her something. And he gave her a little estate. And what she did with that estate was she turned it into a monastery and a hospital for the sick. She gave everything, her whole life, to the furtherment of the gospel. And she was a princess. She never ran home to daddy in Hungary. And um, one day they sent the ambassador because they had heard of what had happened. The king had heard what had happened to his daughter. So that he sent an ambassador to go look for her. And he found her in a dark space doing the job working for the poor, doing similar things to Saint, what St. Saint Francis of Assisi had done, and he wept. He couldn't believe, yes, the, yes, Princess Elizabeth, we've been looking for you. And what really shocked him was that she refused to go home. She said, I've got a better kingdom to take care of than my father. I've got something more important to do than my father. And she never went back to Hungary. And um, you think, well, what happened to her children? One of her sons married into the kingdom of Brabant, which is a Flemish kingdom, a Dutch kingdom, I think. Um, her daughter was also married to one, into one of the nations and kingdoms in the Holy Roman Empire in Germany. And um, one of her sons took the throne eventually. So how God vindicates the righteous, but what I love about her life is she never ever seeked the things of this world. When she heard the message of the gospel, she gave herself wholly to it. Amen? So I wanted to bring that story to you, and I wanted to tell you that because I think it's very powerful. The next person I want to talk about is also a woman. Her name is Joan of Arc. Who's heard of Joan of Arc? I think almost all of us. Have. So I thought, like, let me tell the whole story of Joan of Arc because we usually just think of her as this woman that went into battle and, you know, and then got burnt at the stake. Now, um... Let me just get to some of my notes. Um, she was born around about the ch time of Charles VII. Charles VII um, inherited the throne basically by in, because he was one of the sons of the father that had died during the Hundred Years' War, and he claimed the throne. Now, if you know history at the time, the English and the, the Burgundians had revolted, and the English took advantage of this, and they thought, well, because the English have been claiming the throne of France for many years. And they wanted to take France. Are you guys learning something? Are you enjoying this? Nobody's falling asleep. Amen. Now, um, if you know how the French ruled their kingdom as a king, I think it's the same in England right now. If you need to be coronated as royalty, you have to go to a place in Wales. So Reims was the place that you needed to be coronated and actually officially become king of France. So by the time Charles had claimed the throne, he must have been about 17 years old. He claimed the throne, but he couldn't officially be coronated. Now at about the age of 12, around about the time he claimed the throne, um, Joan of Arc, this peasant girl, started to have visions. Um, so back to what was going on, the English were pushing into France, they, had, um, they were over Paris at the time, and um, 
the time that she started to go to the king and tell him, because she had visions about what God wanted to do, but they were busy sieging Orleans. Not New Orleans, don't worry. The Saints will win the Super Bowl. <laughs> they were sieging a town by the name of Orleans, and everybody understood at the time that if Orleans gets taken, France will fall. Because usually in those times, cities were big buffer points. That was where a lot of things um, balanced out. Amen? Um, she had a vision, and this is what she said. Now remember, I have to read it the way it was told you. We might not understand this, but she said she was visited by St. Michael, St. Catherine, and St. Margaret. Um, they told her that she should drive out the English and bring Charles to Rheims to be coronated. That's what her mission was. Now, according to like the zeitgeist at the time, that's like the, the, the spiritual understanding and what was going on spiritually at the time, it wasn't uncommon for peasant girls to be having these type of visions. This was happening a lot in Western Europe, you know, because of the Catholic Church teachings and what have you. So I'm not telling you a story because she had visions. I'm telling you her story because of the fruit of her life and what she did for the kingdom of France. And um, know also that I'm English, so it's hard for me to tell the story. <laughs> but uh, uh, she deserves the respect as a martyr. You know, a lot of us, like I, I've noticed, I never heard about it a lot in Africa, but when I came to America, people talk about becoming a martyr. I'm thinking, you know, martyrs sometimes don't just get their heads chopped off. They burn. Sometimes they get tortured to death, you know. So um, that's why I thought I'd talk about a martyr, you know. And if you want to read about good martyrs, people that really changed the world, John Huss is one of them, you know. Um, Pastor David mentioned a man of God last week that was uh, roasted by the Romans. If you read about the apostles, every single one of them died at the hands of the enemies of God and died for the gospel except for John the Beloved. There's no record of his death. Some people think he's immortal and still around. They try to boil him alive. After they boiled him alive, they thought, well, this guy's not dying, so they sent him to the Isle of Patmos, and that's where we believe that he had the, the book of Revelation written and Jesus appeared to him. So if you want to know about martyrdom, just go read it. It's not very pretty. The reason why I want to tell her story is because of how much she changed even in such a short time. I think she was around about the age of 19 when the English finally captured her. Well, it was the Burgundians, and they sold her to the English. Um, so her story happened when she was around about 15. Charles must have been about 17. Now here comes this peasant girl telling him stories that so many other peasant girls had been telling people around the countryside. So I think it was because she was so demanding, so adamant, and so convincing that King Charles decided, well, I'll give you a small army. Now, this was a very tiny army. And what happened was she started to have a series of dramatic and strikingly uncommon victories. And what is said about her at the time, that she was a master strategist of war. She reinvented warfare in her native country. And even 22 years after her death, the French military accredited her to changing their military tactics and helping drive out the English finally. And 
I just want you to remember that she's not a Napoleon. She didn't go to military school. She didn't know how to read or write. And yet she is, in the medieval times, leading brutal men that are killers, men of war, and yet this little teenage girl leading them into battle with a small force and started to have amazing victories. And after every single victory, the numbers started to increase. They started to increase. People started to have faith in her. So what, was, what she had envisioned started to come to pass. And you know, a lot of people always talk about the visions God gives them. They have visions. But I never hear people really actually starting to act on them. Well, God gave me a vision that I would do this or stand before this person. So why don't you go knock on the door and try? So I don't know that it's not written down in history how she convinced this king, but somehow he gave her a small force and she started to do what she believed God had told her to do. And eventually, um, because of her tactics and her victories, the siege in Orleans was lifted. And a year or two after that, they started to march north towards Rome, and she had more and more victories. Surprising, dramatic, miraculous victories. Almost all the time she had a smaller force than the English had, and the English at that time had one of the best militaries in the world. They were powerful, they were strong, they had the Burgundians on their side, and she fulfilled her mission. She took King Charles all the way to Rheims and they coronated him king there and that's exactly what the angel or the saints or the cloud of witnesses, who knows, told her that she would do. And a few months after that in a small skirmish, a couple of Burgundians captured her. Nobody really knows how it went about, about 10 or so men captured her, sold her off to England. Um, there's some things I want to read because you can go search it up on the internet. Her trial is recorded. And her trial is so famous that even some of the people that used to do plays in there and embellish some of the plays, her play was the only one that was never embellished because it was so miraculous, her trial. She outsmarted some of the greatest, most intelligent theologians of the time in her trial. I just want you to know that. Um, they were stupefied by how this young girl could answer every question and they couldn't find accusation of her. So one of the things that um, I want to read for you that they try to accuse her of. Um, also, let's go to 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26 because this made me think of Joan of Arc. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Praise God. Um, so she was sent to a politically motivated uh, trial, and this was um, somebody playing the piano. Uh, an angel. Um, the court transcript, this I had to write this down, the court transcript reflects the testimony of a literate, brilliant woman. She was playing chess with some of the most intelligent theologians in the world at the time and can parry every move of theirs. Now, this is the question which stupefied them. This is what the, one of the scribes wrote. They said, do you know you are in God's grace? 
Now you think, well, why would that be a difficult question? But you must understand the Catholic teaching at the time, and it still continues to be a Catholic teaching, that we don't have the assurance of salvation. We're not saved by faith alone. So we'll only find out when we go to heaven. So it, that's why they hated John Hassan, John Wycliffe, and all these guys, because they were starting to present the truth before um, commoners. And um, I think she was also under that influence, that teaching. But this is how she answered them. I had to write it down because it really touched me and I thought, wow. Imagine, so just imagine the doctrine. Do you know you are in God's grace? So if she said um, no, it meant she wasn't in God's grace. It meant she was a heretic and they could burn her. If she said yes, it means that she was being presumptuous and going uh, against the teaching at the time and she was a heretic and they could burn her. Amen? So it's kind of like a question of like, who should we give our money to, Caesar? Or, you know, it's kind of one of those questions that they presented Jesus with. This is her answer. If I am not, may God put me there. If I am, may God so keep me. The writer testified at the time, those who were interrogating her were stupefied. And finally, the crime which she was accused of and convicted was wearing men's clothes which was a violation of canon law at the time. And she was burned at the stake for women, men's clothes, and it was actually, according to the law, a perfectly um, reasonable way to get her out of that, but because it was kind of a kangaroo court, they needed to find something to convict her because she was an enemy. And um, she was shortly after that burned alive. How unjust the world can be. The world doesn't promise us any justice. But we're justified by Jesus Christ's blood, and we will be justified by our obedience to the call that he's called us to do, no matter the cost. Um, Joan of Arc never received any justice in her time. But she's remembered on throughout France as um, a great political hero, a warrior. And she's remembered in French history in the time of the Hundred Years as the greatest warrior that was around, a young teenage peasant girl. Um, this is what Stephen Ritchie, her uh, biography, wrote. I don't know, it's some French name, so it's Ritchie or something. Um, the people who came after her in five centuries since her death tried to make everything of her. Demonic, uh, fanatic, fantastic, spiritual mystic, naive, and tragically ill-used tool of the powerful. Create an icon of modern popular nationalism, adored heroine, saint, she insisted, even when threatened with torture and faced with death by fire, that she was guided by the voices from God. Voices or no voices, her achievements leave anyone who knows her story shaking his head in amazed wonder. And also remember the very people that God had called her to come and rescue and raise up to the throne were the people that left her and never came to rescue. And, no, and historians still today wonder why King Charles never did that. I think it's because he was a jellyfish. A jellyfish is something without a spine. And um, I think God did that because it was to re release the bondage that was over France, that England was bringing. It was a very terrible time, a very brutal time. People were dying. The value of life was none. And that's why I think God used her. But even the very people that she bowed down to and called king and she put on the throne were the ones that neglected her. Does this help you? Does this make you think? Does this make you realize that we're doing it unto the Lord?
So don't always think that if people don't praise you or worship you or say you did such a wonderful job that you're doing a wonderful job. Sometimes you're doing a wonderful job because the people you sent to don't even appreciate you. Amen? It's not always. Woe to those who receive praise from men. And often we're in the ministry because people always acknowledge how good and how, what a saint we are. But those people won't be remembered. The people that will be remembered will be people that always lift up the kingdom of God. The last character I want to talk about, I thought I'd be a bit biased, so I'd choose an Englishman. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I chose him because um, what he did was great. And you know, um, we're running out of time, so I'm trying to go fast. And Pastor David also asked for some ministry to take place. So um, I chose this man because he, kept, he was around in the time of the Viking invasions in England. And you know, you watch Hollywood today and they, they immortalize the Vikings and the Norsemen, the pagans, and how great they were and what soldiers they were and how awesome they were. They make shows about them. And then they always talk about how pathetic the Christians were. And you know, it's just really nonsense. You know, we know that the Vikings were brutal. They, had master t they were master tacticians at warfare at the time. They were fierce. They were scary. But they were evil and they were wicked. And those that were uh, led to Christ by St. Boniface, even the times that were worshipping the god Thor, I wanted to talk about St. Boniface, but that might come another time, um, spoke of how God had brought peace to their land. So in the rule of these gods, there was never peace. There was never assurance that you could live long. And these were the religions that the Vikings had. They always swore on the god of Odin and Thor. And um, they were brutal. They tortured the people they conquered. They murdered and they raped. And um, if you think that's awesome, maybe I don't know what to say. But there was a king by the name of Alfred. He was basically fourth in line for the throne in the times that the Vikings started to land in England. Now, the Vikings came and they landed near... A monastery and the people at that time had never seen such brutality they thought well maybe the Vikings will leave the monastery and move on to um, they'll move on to um, the castles and the villages and take all the but they went into the monastery they slaughtered and tortured the priests they killed them all and people were shell-shocked and fear went throughout the land and for about 20 to 30 years the Vikings were winning many victories and chasing back um, the Wessex people, the people of Mercia, the people of Northumberland, and um, people were in fear. And why I chose Alfred is because the, England has been ruled by many monarchs throughout the years, but only one has been named the Great, and his name is King Alfred the Great. And I thought it would be very appropriate to choose his story because he was a political figure, but he was a very spiritual man. And... Um, he, he took the throne because his brother died in battle against the Vikings and his sons were too young so they had agreed that he would take the throne and rule the kingdom because he was the one who was fighting them. And no one thing, he was losing the battles. He was losing, he was losing, he was a very religious man. And um, he was eventually pushed all the way back south to a place called Wessex and he went and hid in the marshes. 
He was such a humble man that he didn't want to be known as the king, so he even went and lived amongst the peasants, and there was one lady who didn't even know he was King Alfred, and she asked him to look, I'm just telling you this because to know the heart of the man. She asked him to look after the bread that was busy being cooked, and because he was so worried about the things of the kingdom and what was going on, he let the bread burn, and she came and she rebuked him, scolded him, and gave him a hard time, and he didn't even say I was king, he just let it happen. He was a very humble man, and this time that he had received so many losses and he, he did one thing. He humbled himself. And he went into a monastery with a dirt floor. And he prostrated himself before the Lord with his hands out as it was custom in those days. And that's what they believed they needed to do. And he sat down on the dirt every morning very early. And he laid there and he prayed and he pleaded before the Lord that he could give him victory and release his people from bondage, from the pagans, from the marauding Vikings. And um, he would do that for some time. And one day there was a siege taking place where Guthrum, the king, who was involved in the slaughter of many innocents and the torture of many innocents was sieging a place. And one of the princes uh, managed to get an envoy to escape out of the city. And he'd been praying before the Lord. And one of the Psalms I want to give you that he, he prayed and he prostrated himself before the Lord was Psalm 69. He said that and he quoted that over and over. And he pled that Psalm before the Lord and he humbled himself. In, in, in the midst of impending doom, no help, no salvation from anybody. He didn't even know if people still trusted him as a king. And he was praying before the Lord and this envoy came and they found him hiding in the marshes and they said, um, we at siege, we need your help, we have a chance. I don't know why they thought they had a chance because they were losing everything. He didn't have numbers, he probably didn't have much soldiers on his side. So he told... Um, people to meet at a rock, um, I forget the name of the rock, but he said, okay, we'll summon all the people, go throughout the land, and summon everybody to come meet at this rock. Um, I want to get the name for you, but you can go read it. You can even find it on Wikipedia, probably. Um, to meet at the stone Egbert. And he went there, and he waited, and then throughout the night... People, nobody knows why, answered the call. Came from out the kingdom, peasants, um, all sorts of people came. And the psyche changed so much for the Anglo-Saxon people at that time because of how many people had come to rally themselves at King Alfred. And they marched to a famous battleground called Eddington, God gave him the victory, and what he did was always makes me think of that place in Ephesians where hold your ground, stand your ground, put on the armor of God. His tactic was don't charge the enemy, withstand and hold your ground no matter what. The Vikings started to charge them and attack them multiple times, and they received continuous onslaught from the Vikings, and at his call, he told them to charge. He routed the Viking army, and he puts Guthrum and all his cronies in... Um, but he started to siege them, so they ran off, he defeated them, and now the Vikings were being sieged, and he started to starve them out. And they didn't have much bread or water, so after about 14 days, they raised the white flag. King Guthrum at the time said, I was thinking, well, hopefully they'll just cut off my head, because it was custom for the Vikings to torture their enemies, and treat them brutally. And do terrible things to them. And also know that it was in this time that Ivor the Boneless was marauding through England. So we had no reason as the body of Christ to show any mercy to these people. 
and King Guthrum was expecting torture, and he was thinking to himself, maybe I can just get my head chopped off. And when he came to King Alfred, King Alfred showed him the table and showed him a paper and wanted to talk business with him. He wanted to give him land, and he wanted to give him farmland, and he basically was negotiating with somebody who had just lost. A killer, a murderer, an ungodly man. And um, King Guthrum was so shocked by what King Alfred had done. He said, why have you done this? And <laughs> one of my favorite things, this is where everything turned for England that happened in the time. You know what King Alfred said to him? I serve the Prince of Peace. I serve the Prince of Peace and that's why I've done this to you. And King Guthrum was so shocked and so astonished. He said, by any chance, can I become a subject of this Prince of Peace? And this is how he's and his entire army that was left behind him himself gave their lives. And, and King Alfred started to preach the gospel to him. And 60 days later, um, they went and he got baptized. And it was well known that he became King Alfred's son in the Lord. And helped him fight further skirmishes with the, the, the Vikings. But it's well known in history that after the Battle of Edithon and, and in that treaty that he made with King Guthrum, that the tide started to turn. And they started to thrust out the pagans. And they started to win victory upon victory. Um, I want to read some historical facts that King Alfred the Great did. He rebuilt Wessex. Published Alfred's Code. Lawyers who studied the common law known that many believe, know that many believe that the entire English common law probably had its original roots in Alfred's Code. It is well known that Alfred got his principles, his jurisprudence from his deep study of the scriptures. The Old Testament itself is filled with rules governing things like due process. How do you give someone a fair trial? American Americans inherited the, and embraced the English common law mentioned by name in your constitution. It is a part of the legal education in America and it goes clear back to the days of King Alfred the Great. He monitored judges in his time. He would, he would just appear and he'd come before court cases. He believed in um, fair trials. So he would just randomly show up at court cases make sure that the judges were being just. Rebuilt the church, emphasized education, brought back education to the land. Um, the last few years of his life, he devoted it to the study of the scripture and to the work of the kingdom. In other words, he states, he became probably the greatest expression of what you would call a Christian king. This is Alfred's prayer and vow. Let's all stand, actually. This is the time to end. Um, Brother David Potts, can you come play something? The reason why I told these stories is because I want us to think about these people and think about what we may be capable of. You know, King Alfred never ever thought he would be anything and never ever thought that great would be associated with his name. Amen? You might not think that God is capable of doing anything with your life. You might be experiencing loss upon loss. The righteous may fall seven times, but we'll be lifted up by the Lord our God. Amen? So that's why I told you these stories because they touched my life and I hope they touched your life. Amen. Um, this is the prayer that he used to pray often. Oh, wise one, I have sought to live worthily while I have lived.
and after my life to leave for the men that come after me in memory of me in good works. This is the inscription on his grave. Alfred found learning dead and he restored it. Education neglected and he revived it. The law's powerless and he gave it force. The church debased and he raised it. The land ravaged by a fearful enemy from which he delivered it. Alfred's name will live as long as mankind shall respect the past. Praise God. If there's anybody who wants to be remembered and do something like that for the Lord, just come forward and just honor God and just say, Lord, use me. Lord, here I am. Behold, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are perfect towards him. We had a man of God who came from Germany and he spoke about the heart. So whatever it may be and whatever you want God to do in your life, he can do it. No matter how many times you lose your battles, he can raise you up. And I'm not going to lay hands on people. God wanted, uh, God wanted me to minister to people. And I think this is the way it should be done because Pastor David said minister to the people afterwards. And while you just spend time with the Lord, I want to read some of Psalm 69. And I want you to remember Alfred in that marsh. A king, but not a king at all. But he humbled himself. Thank you, Lord. I sink in, I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am coming to deep waters where the floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. They that hate me without cause are more than the heirs of my head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I, then I restore that which I took not away. O God, thou knowest my foolishness and my sins are not hid from thee. Let not them that wait on thee, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek thee be found for my sake, O God of Israel. Because for thy sake I have become a reproach. Shame hath covered my face. I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. For the zeal of thy house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproach thee are fallen upon me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting that was to my reproach, I made sackcloth also my garments, and I became a proverb to them. They that sit in the gate speak against me, and I was the song of the drunkard. But as for me, my prayer is unto thee, O Lord, in an acceptable time, O God. If the multitude of mercy hear me in the truth of thy salvation, deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the water flood overflow me, neither let the deep swallow me up and let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Father God, I just thank you for what you've done throughout the ages. Father God, this nation is crying out for a revival. We're crying out for victories politically, in our families, 
that this nation would turn from its wicked ways, Lord. That you'd bring righteousness and justice back to the people of God in the United States of America, Lord. Remember King Alfred, Lord. Remember the martyrs, Joan of Arc, who rescued a nation from tyranny. Remember those that gave all their riches for your kingdom, Lord. You are the King of kings and you are the Lord of lords and we want to be rich towards you. And we want to be remembered as a generation that overcame darkness, that humbled ourselves before your face, Lord. So Father God, hear our prayer, hear our cry. We remember your loving kindness and your mercies, Lord. So Father God, we cry, have mercy on us. Have mercy on our families. Have mercy on us when we were unjust and we forgot to raise our children right. Have mercy on us, Lord, because we failed. We've come short. We've done everything according to our own power and it hasn't worked, Lord. Hear our cry, Lord. And we thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you're working on our hearts and you are going to show yourself strong. And we thank you that today, everybody that's standing here, his heart is going to be perfected towards you. That even now healing will take place, Lord. We thank you that you are Jehovah Rapha. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. You never change, Lord. We believe you for healing. Healing inwardly and outwardly, physically, mentally, and spiritually, Father God, in our families. Father God, you know everybody's hearts cry that's standing here today, Lord. We have no power, we have no might. And Father God, we thank you that in our lives you'll use the foolish things to confine the wise. That our names will be remembered. That our family members will talk of us in ages to come. That we'll operate in power. Father God, your kingdom is not in word alone, but the demonstration of power. We thank you, Father God, that you're going to demonstrate your power with your outstretched right arm of deliverance over this nation, Lord. And we thank you that it's beginning here today in this house. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father God. Thank you, Lord. Now just trust God that he's going to just do something for you now. Nobody's going to lay hands on you. You're just going to believe the Lord right now for whatever it is you need. Ask him to touch your heart. If you've lost a burden for the lost, ask him to move there. If there's family members, remember what we did this week. So we believe God. We're justified by faith. And Father God, we have faith that in the declarations and everything you did in this, done in this week for us, Father God, was the beginning of revival in this church, in our family lives, in our personal lives, Lord. We thank you for people's lives that were touched in the baptismal pool. We thank you for the miracles that are beginning to take place in Georgia, Father God. That that fire upon the water is flowing throughout the rivers of this nation and is beginning to touch many ministries, many families, and many lives. And we honor that move, Father God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for all those that have given up everything in the riches of this world that stand here in this building today. That you remember who they were before they gave it all to you, Lord. There's people here standing today that have consecrated their lives, Lord. Some of them feel like they're in King Alfred's position, prostrating themselves before you night and day. Father God, we, we pray that you hear our prayers, that you answer us. 
for Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father and is interceding on our behalf. Father God, we thank you that when you hear our prayers, you see your Son and you see his righteousness and you see his robes and his blood shed for us in our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for deliverance. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.